Hello, I'm Earl Fontanelle, and you are listening to The Schwepp, the secret history of Western esotericism podcast online at schwepp.net. Episode 181, Macrobius and the Commentary on the Dream of Scipio. Well, gentle listener, after the foray into the Christianity of Augustine, of Hippo, of the last few episodes, you may be thinking that educated, metaphysically savvy polytheist philosophy has had its day in the Latin-speaking West. After all, one of the reasons the Latin Christians coined the word pagani, pagan, uh, which means something like country bumpkins in this context, to describe the so-called pagans, was that, well, they saw a lot of so-called pagan worship continuing in out-of-the-way spots in the countryside, but in the literate, educated urban centers, it was all but dead. Or was it? In this episode, on the later 4th century Latin Platonist Macrobius, and in the next episodes on Martianus Capella, we're going to see that this was more a case of wishful thinking on the part of urban Christians than it was a social reality. These are two case studies of Latin philosophers drawing on more than a thousand years of culture, so very educated, and almost certainly urban, or if dwelling in the countryside, we're talking about the countryside of the Roman villa, which often functioned as a kind of extension of the city on a granular scale. And these were fully polytheist in their convictions. With both writers, the question has been raised, but were they in fact Christians? After all, in the late 4th century in the West, things were getting pretty hot for the polytheists. And again here, as we saw in our discussion of Nonus of Panopolis, and in a different way with Synesius of Cyrene, the battle lines just weren't drawn as starkly in reality as they were in the pages of a Tertullian or an Augustine. We'll come back to the Christian question shortly, but let's give this episode some structure. We're going to cover who Macrobius was, what he wrote. We'll talk about his theory, uh, the incredible worldview he lays out, concerning which, in case you aren't that interested yet, we can bait the hook by saying that this is a late Platonist metaphysical worldview, deeply informed by occult sciences, including arithmology and astrology, as well as ascent practices. We'll talk a bit about who his main influences might have been, it's a tangled question, so we're going to just suggest some possible main influences, but not get into all the evidence. And lastly, we'll talk a little bit about Macrobius's outsize influence on medieval Latinate reception, both of Platonism and of the aforementioned occult sciences, and indeed of regular sciences like astronomy. So who was Macrobius? Our oldest and best manuscripts, which actually date from around the time of Macrobius, of late 4th, early 5th centuries, which is very rare for an ancient Platonist, uh, they tend to name our author as Macrobius Ambrosius Theodosius, followed by the letters V, C, et, in. This V, C, et, in is short for Vir Clarissimus et in Lustris, which is some honorific stuff that may be very significant for who our guy was. Now, these names and titles vary in the manuscript tradition, with the Latinized Greek name Macrobius being the only total constant across the board, although the Ambrosius is mostly there too. A date of birth has been estimated as around 360 CE, and, but that really is just an estimate. Macrobius was probably from the provinces, based on a single line in his work Saturnalia, where he describes himself 
using the authorial plural as nos sub alio ortos kylo, we born beneath a foreign sky, probably meaning foreign to Rome or foreign to the Latin heartlands. We don't know when he died, so who was he? Without getting deeply into the details here, we have a number of famous, important people called Macrobius referred to in the Theodosian Code, the Law Digest issued under the emperors Theodosius II and his co-emperor Valentinian II in the year 429. This code was the first attempt at a summa of Roman Christian law, and it contains tons of useful historical information on late antiquity because it names names and gives dates. And it's not to be confused with Justinian's code, the Codex Justinianus, which really was the doozy which would shape European law up until the present day. So there are mentioned in the Theodosian Code a number of Macrobii, a praetorian prefect of Spain, kind of a, a governor, a proconsul of Africa, also kind of a governor, and also an imperial chamberlain, sort of an emperor's right-hand man. And these gentlemen were all serving at various times in the Roman administration from the year 399 to 422. Our Macrobius, for all we know, could have been any of these Macrobii, or could have been none of them. The Vir Clarissimus and Illustris title, under the reforms to Roman honorifics that were instituted by the Emperor Valentinian, would have meant that he had held high office of some kind, but which one? And we might also posit that the title could have been added to the manuscripts in confusion, someone assuming that this Macrobius, the writer, must have been the same guy as the well-known politician X, Y, or Z. Maybe. Uh, cue hundreds of years of scholarly debate, which I will just summarize here as inconclusive. One new piece of evidence could change that, but for now, responsible historians will just shrug or maybe make a tentative decision, if any. Macrobius could have been one of these famous uh, politicians, but he might have been none of them. Now, this brings Christianity into the discussion. A lot of debate over Macrobius has centered on a couple of linked facts. If he was any of these famous and powerful Macrobii who served in the Roman administration under Christian emperors, surely he must have been a Christian, right? But his surviving works, which we shall get to, do not betray even the slightest hint of Christianity. Theories have been coined to explain this. Maybe he wrote his pagan stuff and then converted later on. Maybe the pagan content of the surviving works of Macrobius disqualifies him from having been any of the Roman officials. No Christian emperor would promote a pagan to such high offices, right? But it's all bollocks, gentle listener. In this podcast, we've seen a number of case studies which show that the assumptions here are just wrong. Uh, Christians could be super into the Hellenic heritage, like Nonus of Panopolis, or they could embrace both occult sciences and fanatical Christianity, like Firmicus Maternus, the Latin astrologer we discussed in episode 161. If Nonus's verse paraphrase of the Gospel of John didn't survive, we'd have every reason to think that uh, a Christian of the 4th century could not have composed the Dionysiaca, the longest epic to survive from antiquity entirely devoted to the story of Dionysus's salvific life, death, and resurrection. But it does survive, and Nonus was probably a Christian when he wrote it, just a Christian who loved Dionysus. We've seen that actual practicing polytheists, like Ambrose of Milan, and even 
polytheist Platonist intellectuals like Synesius of Cyrene could be promoted to the rank of bishop in the 4th century. So if you can be a bishop, I mean, come on. And a fellow we haven't talked about much in the podcast, a sophist and politician named Libanius, was a very public, very powerful rhetorical teacher and public intellectual throughout the 4th century in the Eastern Empire. He hung out in Constantinople. This was a man whose friendly letters to the Emperor Julian survive, who published a piece in defense of traditional temples, and who was made honorary praetorian prefect by Theodosius I, that brutal enforcer of Nicene Orthodoxy. Things were still possible in the 4th century, which only surprised us in retrospect if we actually believe the propaganda written by radical Christians of the time and later times. So, that's basically all we know about Macrobius. Almost nothing certain, but there is the possibility or maybe likelihood that he was a political operator. And there's a debate about whether or not he was a Christian. If he was, he might as well not have been, as far as his writings are concerned. And we can also add that if he was a Christian, he was a Christian who believed in uh, metempsychosis, reincarnation, based on elaborate astrological considerations, which is, of course, not an impossibility for an early Christian, but it makes for a very peculiar form of Christianity. Now, as for his works, these are as follows. He wrote a work on the differences and similarities of the Greek and Latin verb. This uh, sparkling piece survives in a medieval abridgment of uncertain authorship. We won't have much to say about it here, except that A, it shows if there were any doubt that Armacrobius did know Greek, and really well, unlike certain other Latinate writers of the same period. Yes, I'm looking at you, Augustine. And B, wait for the next episode, where we will discuss Martianus Capella, because it turns out that there's something esoteric going on in the late antique study of grammar. And this interesting line of inquiry will be relevant as we move into the Middle Ages. Then, there was the Saturnalia. This is more interesting. This work, much of which survives, though certain big chunks are missing, is part of what seems to have been a genre of antiquarian dialogues in antiquity. Macrobius has a number of actual historical figures of his time engaging in a deeply erudite discussion of Roman antiquities, customs, and lore. Incidentally, the speakers of the dialogue the Saturnalia, seem to have been prominent opponents of Christianity, which might be another argument against the Macrobius, the Christian theory. The Saturnalia is a bit like the De Mensibus of John Lydus, John the Lydian, a work which hardly anyone reads nowadays, but which you see cited a lot for little snippets of evidence about Greco-Roman traditions, which might otherwise be lost to us. The Saturnalia were, of course, a big Roman winter holiday, sacred to Saturnus, the Roman equivalent of Cronus, the Greek Cronus, who listeners will recall was the father of Zeus and leader of the Titans, this previous generation of gods who reigned before Zeus and the Olympians deposed them. Now, the pre-Greek influence character of the Roman Saturnus is difficult to excavate because the Romans kind of overwrote a lot of their native lore with uh, more prestigious Greek literary models. But what is definitely true is that the Romans had really interesting traditions about this god, and notably considered that the age of Saturn was really a better age than the current one. 
which is also true in the Greek stuff, but there's a lot more concern with the god Saturn in Roman culture, it seems to me, than there is with Kronos in Greek culture. Although there is a lot of really interesting esoteric stuff about Kronos, as we see, for example, in Plutarch's myths. Saturnus's holiday, the Saturnalia, was famous for its subversion of social norms and was kind of the prototype for the pan-European traditions of carnival, when all the usual rules are meant to be broken or even inverted. So that's the Saturnalia, and maybe gives us a little taste of the kind of Roman antiquarian lore on display in this book. One other thing we must briefly comment on here is the way in which, in books three to six of the Saturnalia, the Augustan-era poet Virgil, Publius Virgilius Maro, is treated not as a great poet, or not only as a great poet, but as a universal sage. We see this in the commentary on the dream of Scipio as well, and it represents an interesting trend in Latin thought about Virgil. We've seen how in later Platonism, Homer had long been adopted as an authority on all matters, even matters theological and metaphysical. He was an esoteric writer who cloaked, for example, the story of the soul's descent and reascent to her divine home beneath the allegorical fable of Odysseus's wanderings in search of his homecoming. Well, now, right at the end of, the, of antiquity, we see that Virgil, Homer's greatest Roman imitator, is being given the same treatment. The grammarian Servius, from maybe one generation before Macrobius, who wrote a detailed marginal commentary on Virgil's Aeneid, is of this school. He wants to discuss difficult points of grammar and show off his knowledge of obscure Latin usages, but he also assumes that Virgil is a kind of wates, a seer, uh, an illuminated knower of all things. There was a parallel movement among Christian authors who made Virgil a pre-Christian witness to the truth of Christianity, just like Hermes Trismegistus, based especially on a passage in the Georgics, which are shorter uh, poems by Virgil, where Virgil's positively messianic hopes for the emperor Augustus's reign are simply transferred to the figure of Christ. If you put these two streams of Virgilian interpretation together, take out knowledge of Greek from the equation, so no one can read Homer anymore in Western Europe, you can see how the esoteric Virgil becomes a character in the story of Western esotericism and will reappear throughout the Middle Ages, the pages of Dante's Divine Comedy being only the best-known instance. So that's a little discursus on uh, the esoteric Virgil. We'll be meeting him again, and this seems like a good place to introduce him formally. So Macrobius's Saturnalia comes highly recommended, yes, but also is not what we're here to talk about today. Today we need to discuss Macrobius's third work, the Commentary on the Dream of Scipio. This book is a masterwork of late antique Platonist esotericism, and here we are dealing with an entity far stranger than the esoteric Virgil. We are looking at the esoteric Cicero. <laughs> what am I talking about? For the benefit of listeners who aren't specialists in ancient literature, and just in the interest of telling a good story, here's the deal. Marcus Tullius Cicero, the great late Republican Roman statesman, lawyer, and philosophic writer, whom we introduced back in episode 60, wrote a book called De Republica on the state, in which he looked at the Roman constitution and politics more generally. This book was consciously modeled on Plato's Republic, which could also be translated on the state, and included in its final book a myth, like the myth of Ur in Plato, but instead of being the tale of a man who died 
visited the underworld of the dead and then uh, came back to life, as in Plato's tale, Cicero's myth tells of a dream reported by one Scipio Emilianus, or Scipio the Younger, a hero of the Third Punic War, in which that Scipio sees his dead adopted father, Scipio Africanus, and Africanus reveals to him a whole bunch of lore about the astral afterlife which awaits virtuous Romans who've served the state well, among other matters. We talked about Cicero's Dream of Scipio in a special episode, which can be found after episode 61 of the podcast. Now, much of Cicero's De Republica is lost, but in 1820, a palimpsest text of about a third of the book was discovered hiding beneath a work on the Psalms by none other than Augustine of Hippo. So Augustine did preserve an esoteric text, despite all his protestations to the contrary. And it was a polytheist one. Well done, Augustine. So in Cicero's dream, we have a pastiche of Plato's pastiche of traditional lore, drawing especially on the traditions of the Greek yatromantes, or Greek shamans as they're known, whom we discussed in a special episode following episode 23. Macrobius, about 600 years later than Cicero, is going to interpret the dream written by Cicero, the dream of Scipio, as a document illustrating the actual mechanics of metempsychosis, the astral influence on souls, and a bunch of other arcane lore. In short, Scipio's dream by Cicero is going to be read as a piece of esoteric Platonist writing. If that's all a little confusing, that's kind of the point. This is layers upon layers upon layers of textual interpretation at the end of antiquity, looking back on this long tradition, right? Is Macrobius then a naive late antique dummy who doesn't get that Cicero was writing fiction? You know, Cicero's a lawyer. He's, he seems a, a strange person to think of as a kind of esoteric sage. No, gentle listener. In fact, it's much more interesting than that. Macrobius, like Sallustius in On the Gods in the World, is an example of the late antique postmodern. That is to say, he gets that meaning is created not in the writing of a text, but in the reading of a text. He sort of gets that. But instead of arguing, like some modern postmodernists or post-structuralists, that all texts are kind of an endlessly mutating but ultimately empty phantasm of significations that lead nowhere in the final analysis, Macrobius argues that fiction is in fact a proper doorway for us to discover eternal truths. So it's fiction, but it's true. And that makes sense. But I'm getting ahead of myself here. Having introduced Cicero's reading of Plato's reading, of Plato's Socrates' reading, of a body of reincarnation lore going back to the so-called Greek shamans, let's turn to what Macrobius does with the dream of Scipio. We're not going to have nearly enough time in this episode to do justice to the details of this long and crowded work here. So we're going to aim for a summary. But be assured that we are going to story time the hell out of Macrobius's commentary for all you lovers of late Platonist esoteric lore. Members of the Schwepp will definitely want to go and check out our special episode on Cicero's Dream, if they're unfamiliar with that gem of earlier esoteric lore, as this episode is going to kind of assume you know a little bit about that work. In what follows, we are going to be using William Harris Stahl's English rendering, or maybe he's pronounced Stahl, 
This English translation I highly recommend picking up for Latinists and non-Latinists alike. It's a great translation. The intro tells you a lot of what you need to know about Macrobius's work, and it has a long list of earlier editions on pages 61 to 65, which usefully gathers up the sort of text history of this work. In general, it's a really, really good all-in-one English version of Macrobius. So, what does Macrobius do with the dream of Scipio? He begins with some reflections on the fictionality of what both Plato and Macrobius are doing in their myths of Ur and Scipio's dream, respectively. He distinguishes between regular fiction and something he calls the narratio fabulosa, which is a special type of narrative. It's not literally true, but it contains esoteric truths hidden beneath its surface meaning. This is pretty standard Platonist hermeneutic theory, but we see it laid out in Macrobius in a theoretically rich way. Examples of the narratio fabulosa include, quote, the performance of sacred rites, the stories of Hesiod and Orpheus that treat of the ancestry and deeds of the gods, and the mystic conceptions of the Pythagoreans, end quote. We note that as in Plutarch's On Isis and Osiris, or as in Plotinus's interpretation of temple architecture as hiding metaphysical truths, or in the Abrahamic sphere as Philo and Clement approach the rituals of the Jews, for Macrobius, religious institutions can be read as texts in this way. This is not something we find in all of the earlier hermeneutics in Platonists. Usually they restrict themselves to texts, but already in Plutarch we do see him looking at the cult of Isis and Osiris, including things like the priestly vestments and the words of the initiations and stuff like this, as being esoteric texts hiding Platonist metaphysics. Well, for Macrobius, this is 100% the case. Thus, we should not expect him to see any real limits on the wisdom he can extract from someone like Cicero. If uh, ancient sages who came before philosophy were able to hide stuff in things like religious institutions, how much more should a philosophically literate person like Cicero be able to hide stuff in a you know fictional account? Macrobius then gives a Latinized of the metaphysical assumptions he's operating under. And this is straight late Platonism done into Latin. And here I'd like to read a passage in Stahl's translation, which is Book 1, Chapter 2, uh, Section 13 and following. We should not assume, however, that philosophers approve the use of fabulous narratives, even those of the proper sort, in all disputations. It is their custom to employ them when speaking about the soul, or about spirits, that's daimones, having dominion in the lower and upper air, or about the gods in general. But when the discussion aspires to treat of the highest and supreme of all the gods, called by the Greeks the good, tagathon, and the first cause, proton aition, or to treat of mind or intellect, which the Greeks call nous, born from and originating in the supreme god, and embracing the original concepts of things, which are called ideas, idei, when, I repeat, philosophers speak about these, the supreme god in mind, they shun the use of fabulous narratives. Let me just, as an aside here, say that we find plenty of uh, fabulous narratives about the noose, for example, in Plotinus and uh, many other writers, Porphyry. Anyway, on with our quote. When they wish to assign attributes to these divinities that not only pass the bounds of speech, but those of human comprehension as well, they resort to similes and analogies. 
That is why Plato, when he was moved to speak about the good, did not dare to tell what it was, knowing only this about it, that it was impossible for the human mind to grasp what it was. In truth, of visible objects, he found the sun most like it. But by using this as an illustration, opened a way for his discourse to approach what was otherwise incomprehensible. On this account, men of old fashioned no likeness of the good when they were carving statues of other deities, for the supreme god and mind sprung from it are above the soul and therefore beyond nature. It is sacrilege for fables to approach this sphere. End of quote. Now, it may be sacrilege, but as I say, other Platonists kind of do it. But this is, at any rate, a very nice statement of what you might call a stock apophatic approach, late antique Platonist apophatic approach. Reading the passages in Plato's Republic like the son of the good and uh, the description of the good as beyond essence or being, Macrobius is reading back onto Plato, whatever Plato actually meant, a kind of apophatic sensibility. The, the supreme entity cannot be put into words, cannot be comprehended. Thus, you need to use, you know, things like metaphors and likenesses to talk about it, but you wouldn't ever use fables, mythological style stories. Okay, after this passage in Macrobius, we have a nice evocation of the nature loves to hide trope, which goes back to Heraclitus, and Macrobius recounts the curious story of how Numenius of Apamea accidentally, as it were, profaned the Eleusinian mysteries. We discussed this passage in episode 78 on Numenius. The whole passage here is a tour de force of the interweavings of ineffability and intentional hiding and revealing which lie at the center of the Platonist culture of philosophic silence. Great stuff, but we don't have time to get into it in depth here, unfortunately. We then move on to chapter 3 of book 1, and a categorization of the types of dreams, some veridical and some not, occurs. And here Macrobius is clearly drawing on the same tradition as Artemidorus. Or maybe he's drawing on Artemidorus himself. See episode 71 of the podcast for Artemidorus and his dream interpretation book. But one interesting thing, maybe, aside from the ancient dream lore um, that Macrobius preserves, is the fact that Macrobius is pretty clear that Cicero made the dream of Scipio up. I mean, he's been talking about it in terms of a fiction. A fiction being told for a philosophic purpose. So how is the traditional categorization into different types of dreams relevant? In other words, if this type of dream doesn't tell you the truth, but this type does, and this type is told by the gods through enigmata, and this type is more direct, and it tells you just what's going to happen in the future, how is any of that relevant if Cicero's just making it all up? Well, Seemingly, it just is. But that is actually a beautiful thing, because if you try to pin Macrobius down here to some sort of theory of fictionality, theory of revelation, theory of how the gods communicate with humans, how truth ends up being hidden in texts, you can't really pin him down. We're in a sort of resolutely liminal interpretive territory. This is a dream, but it's a fictional dream, but it's still to be interpreted according to traditional notions of how to interpret dreams. Anyway, Scipio's dream, as recounted by Cicero, basically covers all the types of true divinely sent dream. It's a sort of universal dream. It covers all the bases of, of true dreams. He cites an uncertain work of Porphyry's and the famous Gates of Horn and Ivory passage at the end of Aeneid Book 6, 
which further raises a whole raft of interesting questions about the fictionality of what Cicero and indeed what he, Macrobius, are doing with the dream. Very interesting stuff, but sadly, we must leave that there. In chapter four of book one, the commentary sort of begins in earnest. We're told of the scopos of the dream of Scipio, the, uh, the goal of the text, quote, to teach us that the souls of those who serve the state well are returned to the heavens after death and there enjoy everlasting blessedness, end of quote. As we shall see, this work does so much more than that, according to Macrobius. But from here on in, we start to see Macrobius' methodology, which he more or less follows throughout the rest of this piece. He'd take a line or two or more of Cicero, the dream of Scipio, quote it, and use these lines as a springboard for a long discursus on a topic that interests him. The first of these long discursus starts in Book 1, Chapter 5, and it's based on Cicero's cryptic reference to the numbers 7 and 8. Based on that, Macrobius enters into a long and digression-filled talk about so-called Pythagorean arithmology, discussing more or less all the numbers, 1 through 10, discussing the Tetractus itself, and interweaving citations of Plato, Virgil, Homer, and others, weaving in astronomical lore, embryology, and lots more. He's especially into the number seven, and chapter six is a whole massive seven exploration. So after this arithmological warm-up, Macrobius really launches into his exegesis of the dream of Scipio. I'm going to summarize here some of what I take to be the salient points. Please be aware, gentle listener, that we are leaving out tons of luscious esoteric lore here, and that you are advised to read Macrobius for yourself. Forthwith, it pays dividends. In particular, those interested in late antique astronomy and astrology and its intersections with the physics and metaphysics of the soul will find this book a almost inexhaustible storehouse of lore, much of which goes probably back to the early academy, if not earlier. So for Macrobius's uh, worldview, we are in late Platonist territory. The soul's ultimate origin is in the ineffable first principle that we talked about a minute ago, but her proximate origin is in the noose, the mens, as Macrobius translates it. So souls descend from the mens, the, the noose or mind, into the cosmos and into bodies, but we are in a highly astralized cosmic worldview here. Following Cicero, Macrobius places the home of the best souls, the ones which have freed themselves from the passions of the body and so forth, in the outermost sphere of the fixed stars. Cicero identifies this sphere with God in the Dream of Scipio, following a Stoic notion that the um, although God, the divine pneuma, sort of interpenetrates the whole universe, its hegemonicon, its, its ruling part, might be in some particular astral location. Some say the sun, some say the sphere of the fixed stars. At any rate, following this notion, Cicero says this is where God is. But for Macrobius, of course, the noose must exist beyond this sphere of the fixed stars and beyond time and space altogether. Now, souls should, in theory, be able to hang out eternally up in the highest sphere, presumably contemplating the glories of the world of forms as in the chariot myth of Plato's Phaedrus. They should, Macrobius tells us, but they don't. And this is because of a sort of sin or perverse desire which somehow overtakes them. And here, this is Macrobius. This has nothing to do with what Cicero has to say. Macrobius says, quote, The blessed souls, free from all bodily contamination, possess the sky. 
This is the Kylum, which is translating Uranos, which is in this sort of later Platonist cosmology, the normal term for the sphere of the fixed stars. But the soul that from its lofty pinnacle of perpetual radiance disdains to grasp after a body and this thing that we on earth call life, but yet allows a secret yearning for it to creep into its thoughts, gradually slips down to the lower realms because of the very weight of its earthly thoughts. It doesn't suddenly assume a defiled body out of a state of complete incorporeality, but gradually sustaining imperceptible losses and departing farther from its simple and absolutely pure state, it swells out with certain increases of a planetary body. In each of the spheres that lie below the sky, it puts on another ethereal envelopment, so that by these steps it is gradually prepared for assuming this earthly dress. Thus, by as many deaths as it passes through spheres, it reaches the stage which on earth is called life. End of quote. So, that which we call life here on earth is in fact death for the soul. The whole Hades underworld motif has been sort of flipped, or rather relocated, such that we here are in Hades, and the true life, the true earth as it were, in Socrates' myth at the end of the Phaedo, the true earth is in the heavens. But souls don't simply descend straight into the human body, they may take on a number of potential bodies composed of planetary garments. We learn later that these garments are precisely what we would expect from astrological theory. So in the sphere of Saturn, the soul will obtain reason and understanding, and then Macrobius goes through all the planets in the traditional Chaldean order, so-called, and tells you what um, sort of attributes the soul gets as she passes through each and gets a kind of astral body from each. We later learn that these bodies are perfectly spherical. They are called bodies later on. So this is the de Soma that we've uh, talked about a lot in episode 132 on the soul vehicle. Although Macrobius speaks of an ethereal envelope rather than a pneumatic envelope, which is a little more normal in Platonism, both terms were around. So the idea here is much the same in Macrobius at the end of antiquity as it was in Galen in the second century or in Plotinus or Porphyry in the third. The soul, being somehow astral in nature, acquires further astral layers or accretions as she descends. Thus the embodied human is not simply soul plus body, but soul plus at least seven subtle bodies plus body. It's easy to see how this subtle body accretion plays out in the physics of ascent and descent, and how it explains astrological causation. Why do the stars influence human beings, one might ask? Well, here's the physical mechanism. They influence us through our subtle bodies, which are actually made of the star's essence. It's no wonder we're kind of macrocosmically, microcosmically connected to the whole star uh, structure, since we're sort of made of star material. But Macrobius also gets fully into the signs of the zodiac. Uh, Different constellations and so on all play a role in the descent of the soul. All of this astrological lore is really relevant. So if we wanted to escape the influence of the stars, it would follow that we should shed first the material body made of the four elements, then the astral subtle bodies one by one and become once again incorporeal souls hanging out at the furthest extremity of the cosmos. This is the goal of the philosopher. And following Cicero, according to Macrobius, it's also the goal of the true statesman or patriot whose services to his homeland purify him morally of the vices inherent in normal human life. 
which is actually a form of death. So just more or less along the lines that we saw in Porphyry's On the Cave of the Nymphs, but with a lot more astrological detail, we have a theory of the descent and ascent of souls in Macrobius. And although he doesn't go too much into the details, it's very clear that this process of ascent, whereby we shed bodies one after another and become fully incorporeal again, is a process of divinization, of becoming gods. Now, in the later Christian uh, reception of this work, this notion of becoming gods will maybe be toned down, but it is a very, very powerful story of how humans can assimilate themselves to the divine again. And we will see it taken on very enthusiastically in Western Christianity, especially in esoteric currents within Christianity as a whole. Now, what's interesting is that Macrobius gives us a lot of specific astronomical detail here. Some of it is actually wrong, <laughs> but this will be very influential going forward as well. The souls come down not just from anywhere in the sphere of the fixed stars, but from specifically the Milky Way. They descend and reascend through the so-called gates at Cancer and Capricorn, respectively, where the Milky Way crosses the Zodiac. So actually, it crosses the ecliptic, the Zodiac, at Gemini and Sagittarius. So Macrobius is repeating an error found already in Porphyry's On the Cave of the Nymphs, which probably arises from Porphyry trying to make Homer's account match the visible phenomena in the sky. But anyway, this error will go on to be both repeated uncritically many times in medieval uh, astronomical astrological texts and also corrected by some medieval commentator saying, no, this is actually wrong. It's Gemini and Sagittarius. Anyway, the idea of the Milky Way, as crucial here, might go back to Heraclitus of Pontus. It may well go back to Numenius as the proximate translator to Macrobius, because as we shall come back to, he definitely knew a lot of Numenius. Speaking of Numenius, this is a fairly long episode, but we absolutely need to say a few words about Macrobius's influences. Whom was he reading? He's clearly read Homer and Virgil, he's read Plato, and he's read a lot of later Platonism. He's a pretty well-rounded Hellene, in other words. But early in Book 1, he summarizes three main theories on the astral afterlife, and he plonks for the third, the one we've been discussing, with all the spheres granting etheric garments to the souls as they descend. Where is he getting that from? Uh, the scholarly arguments here get very complex, but they're pretty easy to summarize, actually. Clearly, Macrobius knows Numenius, and some of this material... For example, the detail of the souls passing from the Milky Way through celestial gates seems to go back to a lost work of Numenius. As I mentioned, it might go back earlier, but the most likely source for it for someone at late, in late antiquity would be Numenius rather than, you know, the early academy or Heraclides of Pontus. As for the more detailed astral sphere stuff, most scholars agree that this probably goes back in at least some of its details to Porphyry, uh, that most astrological of Platonists. The two Porphyrian works, both mostly lost, which are brought forward are the On the Styx and the On the Return of the Soul. Attentive listeners will recall that On the Styx, not pieces of wood and not the Chicago prog pop band Styx, but rather the river Styx. On the Styx is mostly lost, but with some kind of esoteric reading of myth along the same general lines as on the Cave of the Nymphs, which does survive, but probably a bit more afterlifey, judging from the topic of the Styx, which was one of the traditional rivers in the Hellenic hereafter. On the Return of the Soul 
is that work which Augustine cites over and over in On the City of God, in Latin translation, of course, and De Regressu Animae is a Latin title given by Augustine which doesn't survive in any of the other lists of uh, titles of Porphyry. This book has a disputed character, some scholars arguing that this was the same book as Porphyry's Philosophy from Oracles under a different title, others arguing that it wasn't, that it was actually a book on the return of the soul. That is my summary of what is, as I say, hundreds of pages of scholarly work trying to figure out whom and what exactly Macrobius was reading for all this lore. Um, having presented these open-ended discussions, however, I think we can safely make the following gen general statement, which might be good enough for a lot of our listeners. Macrobius's detailed afterlife theory clearly owned much to Numenius of Apamea, and clearly owed much to Porphyry, even if we can't always attribute this or that detail to this or that author directly. I suspect, but cannot prove, that a lot of the astrological details we find in Macrobius, things like how he plays with zodiacal symbolism when the opportunity presents itself, or the ways in which he brings arithmological and astrological considerations together, so he has a kind of arithmo-astrological interlocking occult science, a lot of this, I suspect, is his own thinking on the matter. But I also suspect that the basis of his thinking rests firmly on a Numenian, Plotinian, and Porphyrian footing. Now, a lot of the times when he cites Plotinus, he's actually citing Porphyry and just assuming that Porphyry is transmitting the thoughts of Plotinus, because Porphyry was Plotinus's student. But Henry has shown in an important study that he definitely knew some of the Enneads, at least, so he has read Plotinus himself. I think we can get away with that summary of Macrobius's influences. Now, for more info, interested listeners can check out the comparative tables in Stahl's translation, pages 34 to 35, where he tabulates detailed ideas about whom uh, Macrobius was reading from three different scholars, Murat, Henry, and Courcel, and they all disagree. So that shows you that um, it's, it's probably a doomed proposition to try to figure out which precise works of Porphyry are being used in which precise bits of Macrobius and so on and so forth. And if you're really interested, you can check out the Storytime read-through episodes on the commentary on the dream after this episode for a lot more consideration of individual questions of influence and attempts to trace some of this material back into classical antiquity. Now, however, let us look forward in time. It is there in the future, in the Latinate reception of Macrobius throughout the Middle Ages and into the modern period. It is there that the importance of the commentary on the dream of Scipio to the history of Western esotericism cannot really be overestimated. This book is absolutely crucial. Lynn Thorndike, in his magnum opus on the history of magic and experimental science, notes that manuscripts of the commentary from the early Middle Ages are exceedingly common. Everyone was copying and reading Macrobius. When Greek was almost unknown in Western Europe, Macrobius's commentary, along with a few other key works like Chalcidius's Timaeus commentary that we've spoken about, Servius's comments on Virgil, and Martianus Capella, whom we shall meet next time, these works provided a very limited window onto the Platonist tradition of antiquity but it was a crucial window. Let's think for a moment about the importance of ideas from Platonism for the esoteric strands within Western Christianity in the Middle Ages and later. 
the whole construction of ancient wisdom narrative, the idea that there were sort of pre-philosophic um, nomothetes, founders of religious traditions and stuff like this, who are actually secret philosophers, and that this, the truth has been available to all humankind for all time, but it's, you know, expressed differently, hidden under esoteric veils of secrecy and so on. An idea like the Philosophia Perennis that we find in someone like Marsilio Ficino, this is explicitly there in Macrobius's work, especially in his introduction, where he talks about fiction and how we find the truth in fiction. Also important, the Timaeus of Plato established that mankind is in a macrocosm-microcosm relationship with the cosmos. Macrobius gives us details about the celestial mechanics through which this macro-micro relationship functions, which will be incredibly important for esoteric speculations later on. He also presents in the details an account of astral eschatology and metempsychosis, which most Western Christians would see as deeply wrong throughout the Middle Ages, but we will also see people arguing strenuously that Macrobius is not heretical. <laughs> right? He's not even a Christian as far as we can tell, but he's so important to Christianity that people have to argue that not only is he not heretical, but he's, he's kind of orthodox. But those debates aside, Macrobius's importance here is in keeping these options on the table. He may well have influenced a few of the more heterodox theories about the fate of the human soul after death, which we shall encounter later in the podcast in the Lashnate world. Stay tuned for that because reincarnation isn't gone from Western Christianity far from it, but it is definitely going to be esoteric from now on. Beyond the cosmos, Platonism teaches that there are eternal immaterial realities, the forms, which inform the partial temporary realities within the world of everyday life. Macrobius was one of the very few direct sources for this so-called theory of forms available in Western Christendom. And so he helped maintain this option that forms might exist in the Western sphere. And this often in the Middle Ages became an esoteric option against the prevailing, rather materialist approaches which came to dominate the church. We shall see this theory arise again and again in Western Christianity until, with scholasticism, a, a weirdly mutated and attenuated form of it becomes more or less the official Christian position, which is a very interesting turn of events. The story of the influence of Macrobius cannot be limited to any list of names, but you can certainly give a list of names which will whet the appetite of any lover of Western esotericism. John Scotus Eriugena, the School of Chartres, Albertus Magnus, Vincent de Beauvais, Maximus Planudes, who, in one of the weirder moments in the history of ideas, translates the commentary from Latin into Greek in the 13th century, thus re-importing into East Rome a bunch of late antique lore, which Macrobius had translated from Greek sources into Latin in the first place, wonderful stuff, uh, Dante, Rabelais, Johannes Kepler. If these names don't whet your appetite for more microbian reception in Western esotericism, I don't know what will. Let's not forget that Macrobius was also incredibly important just for the transmission of astronomy. Book 1, 14, 21 of the commentary, right to the end of Book 2, 9, which is a massive excursus on astronomy. This was often copied and bound as a separate work in the Middle Ages, a work on astronomy. So it's just Macrobius's Handbook of Astronomy. There's also a lot of stuff about the so-called climes, the different regions, the sort of bands 
of the earth and how they function, which we haven't even got into in this episode. All of this taken together is significant for the history of Western esotericism because it meant that those people who were getting their astronomy from Macrobius were getting an astronomy that was fully astrology as well. The assumptions of astral influence and macro-micro correspondences were fully inherent in the astronomy people were reading in the Western Middle Ages. The planets were also conscious, intelligent beings, which has a very interesting reception in Western esoteric ideas, all the way down to Kepler and beyond. So that's a little bit about Macrobius's Nachleben. Join us next time when we talk about one last amazing late antique, probably polytheist, very platonizing, and absolutely baffling and vexing writer, Martianus Capella, from probably the next generation or two after Macrobius. And until then, be like the narratio fabulosa, a decent and dignified conception of holy truths presented beneath a modest veil of allegory, the only type of fiction approved by the philosopher who is prudent in handling sacred matters, and stay esoteric. <laughs>